Hello and a very good morning to everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to be discussing Europe's Green Deal and asking the question, can the EU foster a global green transition with the emphasis there on the word global. Today we're going to hear a report put together by the Open Society European Policy Institute, Systemic and the Club of Rome. We're also going to have respondents looking at what's been suggested in that report and really talking through the big implications of what the Green Deal sets out to do and whether it can achieve those objectives. Remember, you can ask questions of our panellists. You can use the chat function on the right if you're joining us online. Those of you here in the room, there's a QR code on your seats that you can use to type in questions. And time allowing, we have a very tight schedule this morning. I will try and put those to our panellists. Now, the European Green Deal is obviously very much needed. We know coming out of the pandemic, we're in the midst of a climate crisis, but it is very much designed for Europe. That's not a surprise. But if we want to actually deliver on the aims, we need to think bigger. So we need to think about the transition to sustainability on a global level. We're going to talk about that. We're going to acknowledge some of the shortcomings, but also try and be positive as well and look at the potential changes that can be made to make things better. And if you want to look at that, what we're going to be discussing is the international system change compass. If you want to talk about that online, you can go to hashtag INTL, International System Change Compass. So please do keep the conversation going online as well. With that, I'd love to introduce you to my panellists today who are going to be presenting the report and responding to the suggestions. We have joining right next to me, Heather Graby, Director of the Open Society European Policy Institute. We also have Sandrine dixon Declev, Co-President of the Club of Rome. Janis Potocznik, no stranger to those of us here in Brussels, Co-Chair of the UN International Resource Panel, Partner at System and of course former European Commissioner and assessing all the work they've done. We are very pleased to have with us here in the room Stephen Everts, Senior Advisor on Strategy and Communications to High Representative Josef Borrell at the European External Action Service and joining us online, thank you very much, Fatson Agad, the Senior Climate Diplomacy Advisor at the African Climate Foundation and former Senior Advisor to the African Union High Representative on the AU-EU negotiations, bringing in a huge global dimension that we need to see today. With that, I'm going to hand over Sandrine to you to start presenting the report. Uh, please take it away. Thank you so much, Jennifer. And really, it's a pleasure to be here also with the collaborators of this incredible new report. Representing the Club of Rome, this report for us is absolutely fundamental. Why? Because it builds on the seminal report already released 50 years ago, which talked about the need to address the dysfunctionality within our systems. And I truly believe in this 50th year that trying to understand where we are today based on the tipping points that are already before us, what I call the three C's, climate change, COVID, and conflict. The fact that we have conflict, obviously, on our doorstep. The need to understand how we got to the point that we are today, and then understand where the policy is at the European level so that we can truly unpack that policy, unpack the tensions, within a European perspective, so the European Green Deal, and understand what that means within the broader context of the international relationships that we have. This systems change compass thinking was already adopted in 2020, when myself and Janis actually started to think through what does the European Green Deal mean in real time, because we weren't actually implementing the European Green Deal. We needed at that time to start to unpack, and we worked very closely with the cabinet 
of the president, understanding where the different policies are and how we could actually release the true depth of those policies and implement them at the member state level. But now taking into consideration where we've been, and not only the pandemic, but the Ukrainian conflict, we need to think of putting systems thinking at the heart of international diplomacy from a European perspective, because we don't have another 50 years. I think that is really the key message here. So understanding what are the cross-cutting challenges, and that's what we really try to unpack in this report. Going deep into, if we put in place a certain policy, what does that look like in, at the international level? Shifting from just thinking about net zero emissions and understanding that as we move at the European level towards net zero greenhouse gas emissions, we need to take into consideration net zero poverty at the global level, inequality, biodiversity loss, and the interrelationship between all of those. So what this international systems change compass truly does for us and for, we hope, policymakers, is give them the tools to better unpack those key tensions that we see. And you can see here, as a backdrop, we've put in place the compass. And the reason why we feel that these 10 key principles are so important is because they are truly the shifts that actually we need to have within the European policymaking context, but also within our relationships with the rest of the world. We are in these short-term pain points. And we need to understand what these short-term pain points, first of all, are, where they came from, those systemic dysfunctionalities. The fact that actually we haven't looked at the relationship between food, energy, and materials enough. The fact that we haven't understood our colonial past and our dependencies on some of those materials. On the positive side, and this is why the systems change compass is so important, we are now seeing that the Ukrainian conflict has opened up our eyes to the relationship between food, fuel, and materials. And that if we are truly going to get out of the Ukrainian mess and the conflict and the issues that we're seeing at the European level in terms of pricing but also globally, we have to look at those issues systemically. This compass does exactly that. And I know that my colleagues will go into more detail as that what it does, but let me finish by saying very clearly that if we are able to move forward and apply these compass principles, not only at the European level, which is so fundamental at this time, stand true to the European Green Deal as our North Star, then we must also take into consideration our international relations. And that is really the key message from this report. Let's move forward together on the journey towards having a socially just European Green Deal. Let's make sure that that becomes a global deal, a global compact. Bring into consideration our learnings from COVID, from climate change, and also now from the Ukrainian conflict, and move forward with bold ambition at the European level in this way. Well, thank you. I'm pretty sure that's a very strong statement. I, I hear almost people wanting to applaud that because I don't think anyone here actually would disagree with anything you've said. But, Janusz, let me turn to you. Put a little bit more meat on the bones of what we've heard. Yes, that's... Uh, I will try to go to the uh, core analysis of the report, which is pointing to how very important is how we manage the natural resources. So um, 
if we start from European Green Deal, and that is actually what Sandrine, you were talking about, we, in the most important sentence there, we hear decarbonization, decoupling of resource use from economic growth, and doing it in socially fair and inclusive way. The thing which we are asking in our report is what are the consequences of that on our European relations with the rest? If I give you just one example, uh, if you say decarbonization, and today more than half of our material uh, uh, resources which are related to fossil fuels are shipped by, uh, by, by, uh, uh, by sea, it means that that will be gone in 2050. And this will have serious, not only consequences on the shipping sector, but on relations which we have with foreign countries also. So natural resources, that's my second point, have always been in the center of human attention. They were, the fact is that they were always part which was leading to peace conflict situations. Just imagine land, water, oil, precious materials and so on. But according to IRP, which, uh, as you have said, I'm co-chairing, that's UN uh, uh, dealing with the uh, science policy interface in resource management, natural resources, the shortage of natural resources, it's not the core point. The core point that the overuse of those, it's causing actually the triple climate crisis. So clim uh, triple uh, planetary crisis, climate, uh, biodiversity, and pollution. And that's why it is essential that we go to the basis which is driving us in the wrong direction. According to IRP research, m uh, the, the processing and extraction of materials are causing more than half of climate change impacts, more than 90% of land-related biodiversity loss and water stress, and one-third of air pollution and other pollution impacts. So, where, where actually the problem is, when I was an uh, economic student, uh, I was taught that, um, uh, that we producers and consumers behave rationally. Fine. But uh, this rationality, it's actually based on the fact that we want to maximize what we have here, now, currently. And this rational behavior on the short term is actually leading us to pretty irrational long-term uh, stage. So uh, the core problem is that we have pretty much undervalued human capital, in many cases not valued natural capital. And uh, of course, this leads to systemic social and environmental imbalances. If I give you just one example, if you would be a um, customer of a shopping center, if you would go <coughs> sorry, to the shopping center and not not pay the full price for what you are taking home, the shopping sector set center would get broke. So the same is with nature and our behavior. If we go there, take it, sooner or later, due to our behavior, it will get broke. So uh, this is in the long term leading to something which Arto Pasilina in one of his famous uh, novels was saying, a charming mass suicide. That's basically the direction where we head. And uh, all those ambitious policies from Green Deal, from UNFCC, are basically facing a kind of uphill battle. Because, in a way, the policies which the Commission is presenting are sending us in one way, in a responsible way, <coughs> while, on the other hand, the market signals are sending us in a different way. And the result of that is 
a lot of confusion on the markets from the side of producers and consumers and a lot of lobbying from the business sector, which is afraid to lose the positions as they have. So this leads me to the, to the point why it's really important to look inwards first. Because in using Earth resources and distributing those benefits actually unfairly, many of us in the past benefited, in particularly high-income countries. But uh, the problem is that we have never separated the economic growth from the use of natural resources. So it was always going simultaneously. And this lead, leads us that, that we are now, in particular again in high-income countries, and Europe included, overpassing planetary boundaries and going out of the safe operating space, which is the problem which we have to face. So in international efforts which we do to address that problem, we are more or less looking through the supply side. So it means that we, we, we do all our efforts majority, I would say, are to clean up the current economic model. But we don't ask our question who is actually over-consuming, over-using, and uh, how this could contribute also, if we would try to manage it, to dealing with the climate crisis. So on one hand, it's enormous opportunity to add the, to solutions. On the other hand, it's actually the question of fairness and equality, because it's actually opening this in international context, it's opening this core issue. So we, we have to understand that at the end of the day, we have to focus on human needs, not on maximizing the outputs of the sector. So we don't need cars, we need mobility. You don't need a chair, you need to sit comfortably. So you don't need a refrigerator, you need healthy and fresh food. And through that kind of approach, which is explained also in the compass, I think it's, it's uh, something which is leading us uh, in, in a conclusion, which could be that we should not accept that all human needs could be met only in a resource-intensive way. They could be met also differently. To conclude, more resilient economy it's possible only on more resilient planet. And more resilient society, it's possible only on more equal and fairer world. So economic model as we currently have can simply not provide us because it's overshooting the planetary limits. And uh, this map of resource use still in a way shows these shadows, I would say, of the imperialist world where high-income countries, wealthy nations, pursue their ambition at the expense of the others. So shifting to an era of responsible resource use, benef where benefits are more fairly shared, mitigating resource fragility and strengthening the preparedness and resilience has really no alternative. So addressing the crisis like we face now is the, through the more strategic autonomy it's actually what all the politicians talk about. And we see it currently very well in the Ukrainian crisis. But uh, uh, we, if we would merely treat, so if we would just prescribe the painkillers, like sometimes we do, instead of treat the disease, we will just create conditions that we enter sooner or later in similar situation. So Europe needs a systemic approach, strategic plan addressing global resource-related challenges, 
and take the lead. Multiple approach, uh, like we are explaining in, in this International System Change Compass, might seem to be a long way from something single, swift response, which political and sometimes also media logic demands. But if you look at it uh, from the point of view of somebody who takes care for the future and planetary stability, it is the only way to go that way because all the other ways are simply leading us to the wrong, uh, to the wrong conclusion. So one of the things which we have to remember is making our societies and, 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 and economies more resilient and based on sustainable social and environmental economic system, it's our best defense for anything in the future. And in the longer term, food energy security, it's not about opening new economic front, it's about reassessing our values. It's about rethinking our economies and it's about reducing overconsumption. And uh, we shouldn't never forget, because that's normally what I have heard as a, in policy world, as, as a kind of uh, answer to those co considerations that it shouldn't be us uh, because this will hamper our competitiveness. It should be also the others. The standards and behavior of this economic world in which we are living were set by high-income countries and also the benefits. And that's why we are morally bound to take the lead and also bring the others on board. That's basically the essence of the report. That, I, I, it's a tough sell though, isn't it? I mean, nobody wants to be the politician or the, or the leader who says to Europe, you can't have all the things that you want. You have to reduce, you have to consume less. Um, it's a difficult policy sell, Heather. It is, and yet um, it's also a difficult policy sell to just lurch from one crisis to another. And we're already seeing at the moment uh, the EU responding to a whole series of crises. Now the war, um, but also uh, crises about wildfires and floods last summer. We'll see a lot more of those as the physical reality of climate change and environmental degradation hits the political reality of um, unwillingness to tackle the long-term issues. And that's really what this report is about. We've got to get out of emergency mode and start preparing for the next crises that will hit Europe and start putting in place the infrastructure, the policies and the investments to make sure that those crises uh, can be managed successfully. And this report is about the, the systemic change. As Yanis was just pointing out, uh, there's a, a, there are both past, present and future reasons for Europe to do this. Uh, in the past, there's the historical responsibility that Europe has for um, a very large proportion of the greenhouse gases already in the atmosphere, as well as the standards and norms and lifestyle uh, that Europe uh, created, uh, which now many others around the globe are emulating. Um, and as Janis points out, the overconsumption uh, that that lifestyle uh, involves is no longer sustainable. And we need to address the demand side, um, as, as Sandrine was pointing out earlier. Um, we also have a historical responsibility because of colonialism in which uh, European countries set up extractive relationships uh, with other countries whereby we took their natural resources, their raw materials, and we created our beautiful cities in Europe. 
And the danger is that in future, we could replicate that problem by uh, wanting a lot more materials from particularly the global south and also from China in order to create our beautiful clean cities in Europe. That's a noble ambition. We need to be creating clean cities in Europe, but we can't just start another drive for new renewable technologies to replace the old ones, which consume ever more materials. We have to address the materials use and, and become a lot more efficient in our use of energy, in our use of commodities, um, and all of the, the different things that we consume. We could be so much more efficient, as the International Energy Agency has pointed out, even in just reducing our use of gas and oil in the short term. So there are, there are past reasons and there are present reasons uh, to do this. There are also future ones for future generations uh, who will otherwise have to uh, deal with the massive costs of cleanup. Every time that a politician says, look, we can't afford this, we've got uh, COVID still to deal with, we have food and food prices are increasing, we've got energy prices increasing, people can't afford it. Well, just think how much more it's going to cost if we continue to deplete nature to the point that we see ecosystem collapse. Uh, that will mean that we won't have, for example, pollinators, uh, which uh, we rely on for 70% of our food. We won't have the water that we need. We won't have um, the, the basic conditions for habitable land, which we, which we rely on. So in the European Green Deal, the international dimension is not an add-on. It's not a nice to have. It's an absolute essential part of it. And it's underdeveloped at the moment. European Green Deal is great. It needs to move forward fast, but it needs to develop this international dimension very rapidly now uh, because you can't have a green island of Europe in a dirty world. That's just not going to work. There has to be um, a, a global green transition and Europe has to contribute to it. So we have uh, three major recommendations in this report on how to do it. Um, how to work for the global transition. So one is, of course, reducing resource consumption in Europe itself, as, as Janice was pointing out, because there will be more conflicts in other regions because of water stress. Look at the water scarcity already emerging in North Africa, uh, which is, has uh, multiple other problems too. Rising temperatures, as we see today in Pakistan, record temperatures um, and uh, uh, to the point where human life cannot be sustained in some regions. There has to be evacuation. And ecosystem collapse, which happens very suddenly after a long period of depletion. And we need to see where those, those um, pressure points are, the pain points that Sandrine was talking about earlier. This is the way to prevent further crises. Then we need to make the just transition happen globally, because if the transition is not just, it's not going to happen. Uh, people don't want to go back to colonial era relationships uh, where there's mass extraction um, and the value chain is kept in the high income countries while the environmental degradation happens in the lower uh, income countries. There needs to be retaining productive industry in Europe because Europe needs to uh, be able to produce the renewable technologies and other um, low carbon and lower environmental impact technologies. Uh, but it's also vital to make sure that other countries can move along their own chosen transition paths in order to have habitable land and a productive economy that provides livelihoods in their own countries. And that means a fundamentally different approach to trade policy, to agricultural policy and others which have not really been fully brought on board with the European Green Deal. We need to see consistency across different policies um, in the EU. And that includes in those which are pretty stubborn to reform, as we've seen with agriculture, and also the whole range of EU external policies from development, which is now moving into international partnerships that are very much needed, um, and also uh, trade policy. 
Um, and that means ensuring a fair share of local resources being available for domestic development and also that the EU is deploying European technology and finance, critically finance, for mutual benefit um, so that other countries can move along the path of both mitigation and adaptation. And finally, this system change is really, um, it's bigger, it's, it's about changing the economic system, but it's also about changing international relations. Um, definitely moving to a different kind of global governance, which is based on very deep collaboration um, for long-term environmental and geopolitical security, and one that is based on well-being as the ultimate aim of policy, not GDP growth, uh, which is a, a poor measure for um, an unsustainable end, but towards well-being and meeting human needs across the planet. And that means reducing the imbalances between high and low-income countries, um, but it also means moving towards a better quality of life for everybody. Um, we, we tend to hear a lot about sacrifices. You know, we've got to um, have less growth and consume less. This is all about giving up things and doing less. Actually, it can mean a much better quality of life where you don't have water stress, biodiversity loss, um, the uh, losing of the green spaces in Europe, but also not losing uh, the essentials for human life elsewhere in the globe that will drive future crises. And ultimately, it means increasing well-being so that all humans can have their basic needs met but also they can enjoy better air quality, uh, more uh, relationships with their loved ones, um, not driven um, entirely to consume all the time um, as a means of happiness but thinking about a holistic uh, way of life which is actually fundamentally European but we seem to have forgotten about in recent years. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Heather. And you mentioned there the crises. I mean, it almost feels like we're in a state of perma-crises. We've had the financial collapse with the ongoing climate crisis. We've had the so-called migration climate crisis, which I will reference in a moment. And of course, then the pandemic and, and the current war in Ukraine. Um, you mentioned, I mean, I mentioned the migration crisis. I mean, with the most selfish hat on in the world, in Europe, we might see that as a problem. But obviously, that's not always driven by economic pressures and uh, I think uh, perhaps saying that if we took better care of the planet we might see less um, sort of climate migration. Uh, Fatan, let me bring you in. Uh, tell us a bit about what you think the Green Deal looks like from Africa, from the African perspective. Yeah, thank you very much and thanks for having me as part of the panel. It's probably one of the most refreshing ones that I've been to in a long time. Um, well, I just wanted to start by first saying that I think the EU needs to be commended for articulating a vision for itself um, in terms of how it wants to see its future in a decarbonized world. Um, and, and, and most importantly, do that not just in terms of an aspiration, but trying to put some some meat to the bone, so to speak, by articulating the, the kind of... Um, uh, change that that it might uh, need to introduce um, in in different areas. Having said that, um, I think as Heather said, the international uh, dimension of the CBAM remains very much underdeveloped, and it has been very much conceptualized as an internal EU ambition. Uh, but it, it, it does have and, and will have very important ramifications internationally. And while this is 
potential possibly what the EU also um, uh, had had uh, envisaged as it was designing the uh, the CBAM for geopolitical reasons. I think we need to recognize that um, uh, it, it, there is also an impact. Uh, uh, possible ramifications, uh, possibly unintended ramifications. Um, that that makes us rethink a bit how uh, what a, what a just transition, what an equal transition uh, means. And and on that note, I just wanted to uh, to share uh, some of the thoughts on how uh, this is perceived from from an African point of view. Uh, and, and, and at least some of the elements that we see will emerge in terms of the implementation of, of CBAM. Um, as I said, in, in conceptually, uh, the CBAM uh, was meant to have an impact, I think, uh, on, on the competitiveness even on, uh, of, of, of the EU internationally in a decarbonized world. But there's several studies that have been emerging over the last couple of years and all come with a systematic message that the most hit regions of the world will be the, uh, the, um, uh, the low and middle income countries. If I take the African content, the context, most of the countries that will be affected are middle income African countries. We're speaking of the large ones, uh, South Africa, uh, we have uh, Egypt, Algeria, Nigeria, etc. But in the, that mix, there are also low-income countries. Um, and I'll take the example here of Mozambique, for instance, that because of its aluminium dependence on aluminium exports to the EU, a CBAM may mean that a country that is already struggling would lose 1.6% of its GDP as a result of, of, of CBAM. What um, the risk that, um, that we see also is that the, uh, the, uh, the terms of trade, which is already highly problematic if one looks at the Europe-Africa context, African countries have been for, for decades now struggling to engage with the EU in a meaningful way uh, on, uh, uh, on trade-related uh, matters beyond the, the commodity export logic. And because the CBAM is primarily targeting industrialization, and I'll come back to that later on in terms of the potential impact of the CBAM, but because of, of, of the design as we see it now, and because of this underdeveloped international dimension of, C, of CBAM, what the risk that we see is that it, it, we might see a continuation of this resource extraction at the cost of, of, of a green industrialization development on the African country and in the African countries. And so the, the terms of trade um, are likely to change and even put African countries in a more disadvantaged disadvantage position vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, uh, vis -vis Europe. Um, I wanted to take a step back and, and, and look at um, what kind of... Um, uh, uh, challenges African countries uh, will be facing if if they you know as as they try to adapt to the CBAM. I think Sondrine said it very well uh, when she started, saying that we're we're struggling, we're, we're facing a three C situation, um, and 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 taking that three C's into account um, it will be extremely critical as as we handle uh, the situation. Um, as African countries are trying to react to the CBAM, 
we are, I think it's important to, to, to recall that we are in a situation one of unmet uh, climate financing targets. We are in a situation of uh, low investments in, in terms of renewable energy investments, for instance. It's estimated that uh, uh, Africa as a whole would require around $2 trillion uh, investments in order to be able to upgrade the current infrastructure, to be able to respond to challenges such as the CBAM. What Africa has gotten in terms of uh, a renewable energy infrastructure investment since 2010 is $65 billion. So it, it just gives you a sense of, of the gap um, that we have. Um, so th there's a need to think of that. There's also, there are also very practical uh, uh, challenges to the implementation of the CVAM that may in fact, hamper African countries, even if they want to immediately respond to, 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 to the EU's uh, requirements. Um, things such as the carbon content tracking uh, uh, systems that, that need to be set in place. All of these things do require a, a partnership. They do require a, a collaborative way of working. They do require uh, financing. Let me take it a bit further. Uh, Heather mentioned the point on, on, on value chains. Um, and I think what, what uh, uh, the, the future can potentially uh, show us is that there is there a potential. Uh, as I said, we are struggling with, with, trade, uh, with trade access, but there's a potential, I think, as we move forward, considering the potential of Africa in terms of renewable energy, um, to say, fine, this is what the CBAM requires. Can we then um, uh, increase the investments, particularly in the green industrialization area, around things such as green hydrogen, for instance, around uh, solar energy, and develop and, and, and contribute to developing a, a, a production a, a value chain that is closer closer to Europe, uh, rather than focusing on this on this export logic. Just a concluding word on my on my part, and I could not miss the opportunity of of, of this meeting to to highlight it. There are a lot of ideas at the moment on how to mitigate the negative impact of CBAM. And one of them is that the CBAM revenue could be recycled as climate financing for, for, for African countries. And I can't emphasize how bad an idea that is. Um, and I say so because what we're basically saying is that African countries will be taxed uh, and that money will be given back to them. So essentially, African countries will be paying for the climate finance that industrialized countries have committed to. Um, and I think we need at all costs to avoid uh, that situation if we want a, an equal if we, a, a transition, if we want a fair commitment uh, to a transition globally, which I, I think it's needed. Um, but we need to think of this systematically and we need to think of it in terms of, of, of fairness and equality, considering the historical responsibilities. Thank you very much. Fatin, thank you indeed. You've covered a lot of ground there. Stephen, uh, you've been very patiently listening, taking notes. I know in particular that you've worked a lot on energy and we find ourselves currently at, the, at a crisis point, uh, particularly because of the current war in Ukraine. But what lessons do we take from that and indeed from the report? Is it just simply that over-dependency is always problematic? What's your, what's your take?
No, absolutely. And thanks everybody for uh, really producing a fantastic report and conversation. And what I like about it is it's indeed the systemic approach that's advocated here and that it brings, like it does this morning, different communities uh, together. You know, people work on environmental issues, economic issues or foreign policy types like me, because that's exactly what I think is, is required. Um, we are in perma crisis mode, absolutely. Um, and the best way to tackle that is systemic thinking and systemic rethinking. And I think that's what we're trying to do at the, uh, at the EU level. Just a couple of you know, points in response to the conversation. Agree with everything that we need a global green deal, a European green deal is not enough. Everybody knows we're 6% of emissions and declining. China alone, China alone is 26 and rising. Um, so I would encourage very much this kind of conversations to be taken around the world. I travel around the world, I negotiate uh, with, with colleagues, um, and it's critical that the sense of urgency that is felt, I think it is felt in Europe, particularly by the young generation, um, that we cement a similar kind of sense of urgency around the world. So take this message also to other places where big decisions are gonna be made on investment patterns and, and, and what have you. People know, in Glasgow, as EU, we were ready to go further. Others were not. I still think the EU record, it's not enough, we need to do more, but so do others. Now, we still have climate, uh, binding climate uh, targets that we're constantly in, in the process of revising upwards. Um, we're still, you know, at the moment, the main source of international climate finance. So we have a decent story to tell, but it's not enough, because all the scientific evidence clearly says we're on a pathway to disaster. So we need to do more. And indeed in this world, uh, it's a geopolitical world. Um, it's a tough world, it's a highly competitive world. And the transition to net zero globally will alter power balances. And there will be winners and losers like in any transition. Um, I'm a political scientist, I study power relations. Generally, uh, people who are sitting on top and on our benefici beneficiaries of an existing system don't let go easily. Um, and so we have to rethink how that's gonna work in practice. Um, right now we're all talking about Russia, and we are clear. We wanna get out of the uh, existing model of importing large quantities of fossil fuels from Russia. And you know we're, we're very serious about this. It's gonna happen, and this will fundamentally change our relationship with Russia, where energy has always played too big of a role. You know, um, but it's not only Russia. I mean, there are other fossil fuel exporters, some of them quite close to the European Union, that will have to rethink their whole economic model. This is not easy to do, huh? Um, it will be huge benefits, as Heather and others have said. You know, uh, the oil curse, you know, the associated corruption, the state capture, you know, the, the governance problems that we've had in many of these resource exporting countries. But it's not an easy thing uh, uh, to do. Uh, there's a you know a buzzword in Europe is strategic autonomy. At heart, this is about staying in control of your own future. Um, and I think the kinds of ideas that we heard this morning go in that direction too. Renewables are freedom energies, um, but it's critical also that we avoid creating new dependencies as we phase out our reliance on on fossil fuels from authoritarian countries, countries that have used energy as a weapon. Um, that we avoid creating new dependencies on relying on resources coming from other non-democracies that have also, also demonstrated their readiness to use economic links for geopolitical purposes. Um, 
And of course, it's not just energy. I mean, uh, if, in, my, in my area of expertise, we see the so-called, you know, the microchip crisis. We see problems with those sorts of, of raw materials and supplies. And we're also seeing the, the knock-on effect, of course, of the COVID pandemic with really serious pressure on supply chains and, and you know, queues of lorries in, in various places. And, you know, I mean, you look back at, at things even as recently as that makes the headlines, you know, the Suez Canal, the, Africa, the ship blocking it, you know, the, the, it's these little pressure points that I think get the public thinking about these things. But um, let me ask, Heather, I mean, how do you bring everyone on board with that? And, and Janet, I'll, I'll come to you with your thoughts on that as well. It is the big challenge for democracy. Because representative democracy, as we've had it since the 19th century, aggregates interests and puts one set of interests against another and then voters make their choice. Now we're looking at a system change where we can't have uh, a changes of government policy, very radical changes every four or five years, which is what we normally have in terms of democratic choice. You actually need to have a potentially two decades long transition to a very different economic system, which means um, actually bringing people in in a very different basis. So at domestic level, if you think about our democracies in Europe, for example, you need to have um, new and much more, much deeper forms of democracy through deliberation, um, citizens' assemblies, people being able to talk about the options for their individual communities. You can't just have, you know, electing a representative every four or five years because you need that continuity of policy and you need very deep um, uh, consent from the public. But also internationally, you ca Europe cannot do this on its own. We need to bring in the US. We haven't really talked about the US this morning, but the, the failure of the US to develop a, a green deal of its own is a huge problem now, given that the US is a massive emitter and uh, also massive overconsumer per capita. So how do we deal with the transatlantic dimension of this? That's really vital. Um, China, as uh, Stephen was pointing out, not only major emitter, but um, a lot of Europe's responsibility for overconsumption is because we outsource our production to China. So what kind of new relationship can be had there? And then how about the rest of the world, uh, which is most of the world, in fact, um, where uh, people have not had the chance to develop into an overconsuming lifestyle. So this is why I think the, the, ch the, the changes in power in, um, relationships that Stephen was just referring to need to be accompanied by a much more inclusive approach that we are literally all in this together. There is only one climate. And if we mess this up, not only Europeans will suffer, everybody's going to suffer, and in fact, other regions sooner than we do. So this question of, of making consent happen depends on having a just transition that really serves everybody. Um, and that means a very different approach to international relations, one that is based on um, having a systemic plan. Janet, I mean, we can't wait for the crises to stop because they might not. We might be. Yes. Actually, one thing which I would like to clarify, because I think we were not clear enough and it might sound a bit frightening before. When we talk about that there is a need to cut the overconsumption of virgin resources, that does not automatically mean less human needs met. Yeah you meet them in different way. And uh, so we absolutely have that in mind. And I can give you plenty of examples how those, so you can, for example, currently you are buying light bulbs and the producer is incentivized to sell you as many light bulbs as possible and because this is creating his or her profit. But if they would sell you the light, actually 
the light bulbs would be their cost. So when we talk about limiting resource use, it's not so much directly linked to the consumers, it's linked as much to the production as to the consumption also. The second point which I want to do is, I have just a few days ago published an, an op-ed in, in Euractive, which, is, which has the title uh, Nature First. And uh, I, I think there are a lot of lively debates behind now, is this right or wrong? But let me ask you the question, are we humans part of nature? And if somebody is not agreeing that nature first, it's not agreeing that we look through the, our own eyes and take care for ourselves. So one of the core problems of today's, and that's also admitted by, uh, or clearly pointed in the recent Dasgupta review of uh, economics of biodiversity, is that contemporary economics looks to the humans as external to nature and not as part of nature. And the whole behavior behind is pretty much uh, the problem of that. And uh, the last point is, which is actually the paradox. You know, those who are not admitting something which the Club of Rome wrote 50 years ago about the limits of growth are in practice most limiting the future growth so that we understand that because of the side effects and things which practically all the research is today showing us. Disregarding that will cause us side effects which will directly hamper future growth potential. And if we don't understand that, then unfortunately we don't understand what world we live in. Yeah. I just want to <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Yanis. I want to come exactly to that point, because first of all, the limits to growth was never talking about the limits to well-being. It was not talking about the limits to human development. It was simply saying that we needed to understand our relationship within the planetary boundaries. This report shows specifically how we can get back to that, how we can actually address the power games in a way in which we're bringing on board low-income countries, mid-income countries. We're realistic about the hypocrisy which was brought up by both of you in the last interventions. The fact that actually, on the one hand, we may penalize through CBAM, and on the other hand, we haven't given 100 billion, which we promised as an annual climate budget for those low-income countries that actually are suffering from loss and damage or from climate effects. So I think what's really important here is actually within the power politics, understanding that we need to get away from power and back into the principles that we have put in this compass, which is understanding what prosperity means for the many rather than the few. And that might seem like some pipe dream, but exactly as Yanis says, and actually as Sharon Burroughs says, who is our dear friend at the International Trade Union Confederation, there are no jobs on a dead planet. If we fundamentally believe that our economy will thrive without the planet itself and the planetary boundaries being totally decimated, then we are so unwise and we don't deserve to actually be here as human beings. I think this is the key resonating point. And we have to get down from our high horses, think through those tensions that we have before us. And yes, there are those pain points. But let's remember something. This situation we are in right now with Putin is because we geopolitically did not act when we should have. The bully next door has been allowed to become a bully 
because Europe actually did not put in place the climate and energy package, did not think through energy efficiency first, did not implement the farm to fork policy in the way in which we should have, and instead allowed for our dependency on gas and on oil to become the dominant force within our economies. So we need to get better at taking a step back, at thinking through how we can plan that resilience. We have the solutions in the toolbox. The question is, do we have the political will to do it? And I do agree with Stephen. Europe has the foresight. Europe has the leadership, both in terms of social and environmental goals. Now it needs to step up to the plate, show some humility, and figure out how best to work with the rest of the world, and it, we do say most of the world, in order to implement not only the European Green Deal, but work towards a global just and fair transition. Stephen, did you want to jump in with a point? Well, <laughs> just two quick points, and I agree very much with Sandrine and other comments. First, I think analytically, it is correct to say that we're taking the big decisions on Russia, oil and gas today for geopolitical reasons, sad to say, not for climate reasons. I wish it were different, um, but I think that that's just, I wanna wanted to make that analytical point. A second analytical point I wanted to make is, if, you know, again, the world that I see is a highly competitive world with a lot of power politics going on. Um, and I see the global system, the UN system, the multilateralism uh, struggling. Uh, to produce the kinds of global public goods that are very important to all of us, not just to Europeans, but to everybody on this planet. Um, I again, I wish that were different, but this is how I observe it. And the record of the pandemic showed that the solution came from the scientific world, not from the, the diplomatic world that I inhabit. Um, and may I, maybe we should think through of if you call for a system level, global level, multilateral led embedded solution, is that gonna be there one? Or is it more something about disaggregation, local, regional, thousand different ideas and, and, and different initiatives? Um, because again, I think we live in this power political world. There's another compass I wanted to say. It's called the strategic compass that Josep Borrell produced. And in there, there's a sentence in it. This world that in which we, is this is not the world that Europeans chose or wanted, but this is the world we have to face. It's a power political world. And what does that mean for our great plans here? Stephen, thank yeah. you, um, because there, there are two thoughts there. Mm -hmm. One is that bottom-up. Actually, a survey that we've just undertaken, actually with scientists and system dynamic models, was to tap into the consciousness of people in the G20 countries. And what we received was actually quite phenomenal. 75% of citizens across those G20 countries actually want well-being. And they're ready to move towards well-being. And we did define what well-being. That comes out of work that we've been doing on system dynamic, bringing in great scientists like Johan Rockström to think through where are the core solutions. And Janish and myself have been part of this exchange, economists, thought leaders, with the scientists to come up with a system dynamic model that addresses five key turnarounds. And those five key turnarounds are fundamental and they're very linked to what we're living right now. It's looking at poverty, inequality, empowerment, alongside our core two sectors, food and energy, which drive our economies and materials being linked to those. And we will be coming out with the report and the new book actually in September, which will exactly tap into 
how do we address the scientific risks of not doing the right thing with the new economic levers that are necessary to shift us towards true well-being for more and the many rather than the few. And there will be quite a few good solutions in there, including new dividend thinking, including how we look at the international institutions, the MDBs and their role, but as well the bottom-up surge. We have to tap into that consciousness of the 75%. I mean, you mentioned science. I mean, obviously, I come to this. I think technological innovation can be a huge boon. I mean, we look at the global south. We see things like leapfrogging. For example, we, we, we in, uh, in, in the developed world, in the West, and we had, uh, you know, wired telephonic communications, which were sadly lacking in the global south. But yet, they've leapfrogged us in terms of mobile use because they didn't have those dependencies on wired communications. You see more mobile use in the, glo mobile use in the global south than you do uh, in here where we've dependent on all these wires around us. And with that, it's, uh, it's my, my segue into our technological communication because we have lots of questions coming in. And I'm, uh, I'm fully aware that uh, time is running out and one hour is not nearly long enough. Uh, so I'm going, to, I'm going to ask two or three of these questions together and let you pick and choose which ones to try and answer briefly. Shelley Bogra has said, does the report also offer insights into possible systemic solutions that can promote equal distribution of basic resources to low-income categories in so-called capitalism-controlled democracies. I mean, we've, we've touched on a lot of that. It's covering. Yitzatek Yitbarek has asked, what about the standards such as pesticide and fertilizer use? A uh, very specific look there that limits African countries to access Green Deal opportunities. Um, Africa is in the tropics and the pesticide and fertilizer use there is quite different to that of Europe. Um, so does the Green Deal work in that context? Isatou Sar has said, what are the add-on considerations for human health and environmental protection to enhance the core of resource recovery systems and processes? And William asks, Oh, <laughs> are the leaked communications on the energy diplomacy expected next week and the global gateway of the European Commission aligned with these 10 principles of the report? What should the EU address? If you've seen the, the leaked report, you can comment on it. Um, Fatin, you're, you're joining us remotely, so we, we've possibly not brought you into the conversation enough. Give me uh, you know, your, your quick thoughts on what you've been hearing so far. Yeah, thanks. Um, let me let me pick up on the last point and perhaps link it to the point that Stephen raised on, on the role of, of power politics. Um, I think what we're seeing coming out of, of the leaks is frankly concerning. Um, if if they if they are indeed confirmed, and I think it it confirms the, the, the predominance of geopolitics over the climate agenda. And I want to take this a bit to, to challenge, I would say, um, EU officials, uh, EU institutions, um, who have been, I think, singing a song internationally and realistically internally being very aware that the bottom line is ge the geopolitics, the bottom line is uh, European power, uh, sustaining the, the power of the European Union. Um, and, and just to say, it's becoming a credibility, a credibility issue. And so I think if, if, if the, uh, the leaks are to be confirmed, um, I think um, there, there's a need, uh, perhaps, 
um, for those of us who are more 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 pro transition, pro equal transition, uh, to potentially you know think a bit more critically on how to engage this in a space that goes beyond a north south kind of divide, industrialized versus. Uh, lower middle income countries, because um, I think the challenge there in terms of a potential pushback from 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 geopolitically concerned uh, actors is, is 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 concerning, and and I think the strategy, whatever it um, in which form it will take, I think it needs to take that into account. But just to emphasize, I think Europe does have a credibility uh, issue at the moment. Thank you. We hear that loud and clear, Fatin. Um, Heather, I rattled through quite a few questions there. Was there any one in particular that... Well, those questions really show how much there needs to be a systemic perspective on all of this. You know, if you just tackle, for example, fertilizer and pesticide use on its own, you don't get into the issues around uh, biodiversity and about um, water use, uh, the need to address all of the inputs into agricultural systems. Um, and for too long, we have atomized our approach to um, issues of development, issues of trade, and issues of, of environmental protection. And even just the term environmental protection is, you know, really suggests how much it's, it's just, a, as, as Yanis was pointing out earlier, how much economics thinks of the environment as something different from us, and yet we are fully part of nature. So the need to look at health, at agriculture, food food supply, um, water, um, and also, um, also as you were mentioning, global gateway and, and the digital realm, um, as really being part of one system. And how do we create a sustainable system that will continue to serve human needs, not only in Europe, but in the world, but also not just us sitting here now, but future generations. And that's where we're getting to. I think the, the fundamental problem we have is people still see climate as a challenge for future generations only. That, okay, this is going to be a problem for my children. Hopefully they'll forgive me because by then maybe people will have forgotten um, who actually put the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and who uh, used up all of the resources that we now need. No, this is something that is affecting us now with heat waves in South Asia, uh, with floods and, and fires in Europe. We saw them last summer. We're seeing wildfires already in California extremely early in the season. Uh, that was news today. Um, that's because the natural system that has sustained us for so long is breaking down. So we have to change the economic system that is causing that breakdown. And what this report fundamentally points out is the need for the interlinkages across the different policy areas, what, what we call in the report eight economic ecosystems. So the way in which um, health, food, um, mobility, housing, all of these things are interlinked. And so drawing the links across them and seeing uh, the way that uh, the system itself needs to regenerate and to provide for human needs is, is the fundamental message of, of this report. And I think a really important, hopeful and optimistic message that Yanis was giving us earlier uh, from his very long experience um, in this field is we have solutions. Um, there, we have a circular economy plan that Yanis himself put in, into uh, um, into to the EU's own thinking and policy making when he was um, environment commissioner. We have many very useful and very good policy frameworks in Europe. Um, it's not as if this, the, neither the technological nor the political solutions are unknown. They are known. It's a matter of the political will to put them into practice. And we've seen in just the past few weeks how much it's possible to do. 
um, in moving away from hydrocarbons, um, on, on dependence, uh, toxic dependencies. It can happen if the political will is there. But it needs to be seen as a present and urgent issue, not something for the future. And as Stephen was pointing out earlier, that Europe needs to convey that sense of urgency also in its dealings with the rest of the world. It can't be we have urgency in Europe, we're all listening to Greta in Europe, we're doing our, our thing on our continent, and well, the rest of the world, we have to continue business as usual. No, the sense of urgency is, is very much there. And so Europe pushing this as a very positive way of overcoming the old toxic dependencies and moving into very deep collaboration is the message that really needs to be there throughout EU external policies. Sandrine, you mentioned Greta. I mean, I believe she is trying to get her, her voice heard globally. She's on straight Friday. She's on straight Friday. <laughs> Friday. <laughs> Parliament right now. Well, do right you have hopes, given that, you know, this is an intergenerational question. I don't think there's anyone yeah. in this room under 25. But, you know, there is a, a different sensibility. <laughs> yeah. Co completely, and actually having just written a book with Anuna de Weber and actually Adelaide Charrier, who are our climate activists working also with Greta, I think part of that intergenerational dialogue was very much also their frustration at policymakers for not understanding the complexity of the decision-making that's before us. And exactly as Heather was saying, and we've been saying throughout this report and this discussion, these silos that continue to persist in our system. I mean, the, the fact is that leaked document does not reflect the complexity of the decision-making that Europe needs to take. What it reflects is our typical going back, getting into a security discussion on energy rather than thinking through the interlinkages with our climate policy, with our food policy, with our materials policy, and with our finance policy. And so how is it possible that we continue to actually have before us the most complex moment in history where we are actually having to make decisions during chaos and that we still play the ostrich, that we still go back to our comfort zone and we don't test ourselves. This is why I say we have dumbed ourselves down and policymakers are so good at doing that because they don't want to take the risks. Last point, every single geography is different. We're not saying here that we've got one solution, that this systems compass is saying that actually Europe is going to go off into the rest of the world and continue to say this is the way you need to react. No, actually what we're saying is let's use that intelligence, let's work better with other countries, let's figure out how we can do this together, use their solutions as well as our own. But coming back to the very good point that was made in the very beginning, let's make sure we are credible as Europeans and as decision makers, and not come out with taxonomy recommendations, which by the way, I sat on the taxonomy group for two and a half years, based on science, those recommendations were the ones we should have taken, and instead, in two months, thrown them out the window and put in place energy policy, which is supporting two core types of energy. So we really need to be bold and stop going back into these knee-jerk reactions of siloed sectoral thinking based on security rather than thinking through in a holistic perspective. Well, I know I'm going over time, but Fatan and uh, Stephen, I'm going to ask you each for, for one sentence in reaction to the compass. I know that's a challenge before I'll hand the floor to Janusz for a quick wrap up. Fatan, uh, one, one core takeaway that you want to send a message on. <laughs> 
I think it's just to agree that I think it's critical to 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 think in a, a systemic way. I think that's the right approach, and uh, hopefully, I think with with the different discussions, I think which with this one for the first time, in fact, in in my experience, has started uh, that that does open up the space a bit for these kind of discussions. Stephen, you're a, you're a respondent to the report. <laughs> no, I, I like it a lot, and I like this discussion this morning. Um, in my field, we've broken taboos and we've accelerated things and in, a, in a dramatic fashion. So I think, as, as Heather and Sandrine were saying, it is possible. Solutions are out there. And I think next week's package, when it finally will be uh, presented and unveiled, will convey that sense of holistic thinking, acceleration, uh, and ambition in a global sense, because we absolutely need to bring the rest of the world with us. Janet, there were a lot of questions. We've, we've ranged far and wide in, in quite a short space of time, so I leave it to you to pick out something. It's practically impossible to answer uh, them quickly, but uh, just maybe to say first on pesticides and fertilizers, because it was a clear question. You know, food security is not only by intensification of input and production which uh, normally the business sector is trying now to, to, uh, to, uh, to point. It's, it's actually how very much, how much we produce for direct human consumption, cereals rather than animal feed. It's about agroforestry, which simultaneously provide food beneficial ecosystem services. It's about precision agriculture. It's about vertical farming. It's about meat alternatives. It's about food waste. It's about protecting pollinators. It's about protecting the soil. But it's also about broader policies, how much of land we use for, I don't know, expanding cities, how much we feed the to cars instead of feeding the people, all that is food security. So don't look only to pesticides and fertilizers because it's not the right answer. Uh, second, the report is definitely uh, giving possible systemic solutions, but as Stephen pointed, I think uh, geopolitics, geopolitics and power game is uh, part of our reality. But like I have said before, I will never accept that our needs could be met only in a resource-intensive way. I will also never accept that our peace can be met by stockpiling our deathful weapons. If this is the solution which we all have, then I think we, we, we are really, uh, really human. So, uh, and I will end up with a quote uh, which I normally end up my presentations. It's very appropriate because it's from uh, the most Belgium be uh, famous Belgium. It's for, from Hercule Poirot. Uh, when he was once asked uh, why, why he's talking about himself only in third person, his reply was, if somebody is so intelligent like myself, you need to have a certain healthy distance from yourself. <laughs> so I think that's pretty much an advice on one hand to humanity, on the other hand to Europe. Yes, we are all very intelligent. We all lead the way. We all understand that we have our responsibilities via the future generations, via the rest of the living beings, Let's behave according to that. Well, thank you very much. Thank you all for your uh, splendid discussion and, of course, for that work on the compass. If you're following online, you can check that out. Use the hashtag in INTL, short for International System Change Compass, and you'll be able to follow the links there and read the report yourself. We're going to finish with a video, so I'm going to hand over the floor now just to close us out. And remember, this is only the start of the discussion. There's also a lot more conversations to be had. So keep tuned and keep watching.